Popheads. Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. That's right around the corner, too. Welcome to issue 65 of 3BZ Presents, the TomCast Popcast, also known as Popcast. I am your Yuletide host. My name is Tom. Please follow this awesome podcast on social media at TomCast underscore Popcast on Twitter, at the TomCast underscore Popcast on Instagram. Hey, and you can email me too, TomCastPopcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling so inclined, head on over to Pop... Head on over to join Pophead Nation at patreon.com forward slash TomCastPopcast. Thank you to our current Patreons. Thank you to the Aspen Hill Chody, the Squidmaster General himself, Mr. Brian Broussard, and our newest Patreon, the Batman of Bay Park, Jeff Nail. Jeff is also the co-host of the fantastic, splendor, splendorific music show, The Ringing Ear. Check out that podcast on your favorite devices. It's so good. I love it. I love Jeff mostly. The podcast is good too, though. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever sweet, cool platform you're using. And if you can, five-star reviews. They are awesome and help us spread the word, get the love going for the podcast, and let other people, let the strangers in on the cool secret that you have that you're listening to the most fun pop culture podcast in the land. All right, let's do it. We're here. It happened this past Sunday night. Was the finale of Watchmen. Was it a season finale? Was it a series finale? We don't really know for sure. There are no imminent plans for a season two, but that doesn't mean a season two won't happen down the road. I'm not entirely sure we need to have a season two. I'll just say it right now. But we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about that kind of at the end of the show today. We're going to talk about like, if the, if Watchmen has a future, if it needs a future, that those, those kind of things. We'll talk about that more after we discuss the episode. So I think it's uh, I think it's important to say right off the bat, I really like this episode. But yeah, I know I had to put a button there. Sorry, but it's probably the most batshit crazy episode of of the season of the series thus far. But that is because I think it had to be. I mean, again, we are we are at the the denouement, the climax of the story, and we just introduced. Well, I suppose we just reintroduced Doctor Manhattan to the world. You know, everyone assumes he's been gone since 1985, and now he's back, and everyone seems to have plans for Dr. Manhattan. And when you have a character with the power of of a god, uh, yeah, things are going to get a little nutty, and and that's okay. It still works within the context of the show. It still plays by the rules that the show's established. It still does what it's supposed to do. And, you know, were you, were you, were you guys happy with the conclusion of the series? I I think so. We'll, we'll talk about it as it goes on. Let's just say that, okay? Uh, but yeah, it was a nutty episode, and that's okay. We're okay with nutty episodes, especially when it comes to superhero stuff. So let's let's kind of get into it, all right? Episode 9 of Watchmen, titled See How They Fly, directed by Frederick E. O. Toye, written by Nick Hughes and Damon Lindelof. The episode is titled See How They Fly. Now this is everyone probably knows it was pretty pretty obvious, uh, but this is a lyric from 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 the from the Beatles song "I Am the Walrus," which gets heavy play in this episode at the end. But a lot of the lyrics in that song in particular are incorporated throughout this series. So if you are a Beatles fan or a fan of that song in particular, you can kind of go back and you know look at the lyric sheet and kind of be like, oh yeah, that was referenced in so and so, and that was referenced in so and so, and it's kind of a fun little thing you can do. If you're into the Beatles and all that good stuff. So the episode opens up and we find ourselves 
We're back in time. It's 1985 once again, and we are at Karnak. We are at uh, Adrian Veidt's Antarctic Retreat, and this we we open on Adrian recording the video that he uses that he sends to newly elected President Robert Redford in 1993. This is the video that was shown to Wade Tillman back in Episode Five. We see that Adrian has a staff of people around him helping him film this video. These are all uh, Vietnamese refugees. These are the people that he has brought on to cater to him. They are people who have, uh, after the colonization of Vietnam by Americans turning into the 51st state, uh, these are the people who weren't too happy about it, and they have gone to work for Adrian Veidt, and they're helping him record his video. It's interesting it's interesting to think that he would record this in front of an audience. Now, I don't know if he thinks that they don't speak English, or perhaps he assumes that they don't understand, or perhaps he simply plans to kill them. I don't quite know for sure. It's never really illicitly said what his plans for this, this crew are. I know when we find him a year later, he's all alone. Or not, not a year later, I apologize. When we catch up with him in 2008, he's by himself. So we don't know what he's done with this crew. Now, the important part to, to pay attention to in this opening sequence is the cleaning lady who makes her way into Adrian's office. And we find out she's uh, quite savvy, quite clever, hacks her way into his awesome 1985 computer. And we find that Adrian, for reasons that are still left a little vague, uh, has a just vial after vial of semen <laughs> behind a painting of Ozymandias in his, or is it Alexander the Great? I think it's Alexander the Great. A painting of Alexander the Great and just vials of so much, so so much semen. Just tons of it. It's gross. <laughs> and we find out that this is this is Bien. This is Lady True's mother, and she is going to artificially inseminate herself in Adrian's office while saying a Vietnamese warrior poem. I found that out. I googled that. This is a famous Vietnamese warrior poem and she's going to inseminate herself while saying fuck you Azimandias so clearly she's not a fan of the man is that because the way he seems to elevate himself above others again we're not really given a lot of context as far as that goes but you know let's, let's be honest she probably is also smart to know that Adrian is confessing to the world what he did and she knows that he is the biggest villain around, even though he believes he's the savior of humanity. And that's going to come up later. I think you're going to notice that in Lady True. She she thinks she's going to be the biggest savior of humanity, but let's be, let's be honest, what she's planning on doing, no one should be able to do those kind of things. But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. So after this, the after the insemination is completed, uh, we, we go forward to 2008. And a lady bundled up in heavy Antarctic gear makes her way to Karnak and begins banging on the door. We find out pretty quickly that this is Lady True, and she's come to meet and introduce herself to her father. She knows about the plan. You know, she knows about the giant fake squid monster that he unleashed on New York City, killing three million people. Now again... Jeremy Irons, uh, Ozymandias, all alone at Karnak at this point. We don't see any any more servants around him. 
So Lady True's come to meet her father and introduce herself because she wants to borrow, I think it was $47 billion so that she can begin her plans to save humanity. But that's, uh, that's not really his cup of tea. He's not going to help her because that's not how he did things. And he's not going to acknowledge her as his daughter ever, so he says. She also takes a good shot, a couple of good shots at Jeremy Irons for not having done anything since 1985 and kind of just living off this glory to perpetuate this myth that he's created of, of, of interdimensional incursions by alien squid monsters. And, you know, Jerry, let's be honest, Ozymandias is a huge egotist, so he doesn't take too kindly to that. So let, it, let's, let's talk about it right now. I mean, we, we, we aired our theories on this, show, on this podcast about where we thought Lady True's origins were from, and we were wrong. We were very, very wrong. Uh, it was staring us right in the face the entire time. You know, the world's smartest woman obviously makes sense that she is related to the world's smartest man. Yet, because... Ozymandias is a character we've never seen with a female, let alone have an interest in females. Um, he does not. It, does, it doesn't occur to us. It really, really doesn't, even though, it, well, like I said, it's staring us right in the face. So, so Lady True is conceived through rather, I don't know, dastardly? <laughs> I don't know if that's the correct word. Uh, obviously, she is created um, out of spite for Ozymandias, and to... I think I think her mother's plan is to help kind of topple Ozymandias by having a a daughter who is so insanely smart. Now this opening scene the opening scene also lays the groundwork for a lot of stuff that we've seen in the episodes. A lot of Ozymandias' plans while in prison on Europa are laid out in this scene. This is why he's always checking his clock when he's on Europa. He knows because of this conversation that he's having with Lady True in 2008, that a satellite will be passing overhead at a very specific time. So that's why he has to launch all those bodies so that he can spell out Save Me. This scene in particular puts a lot of context to, to the things that we've seen previously in the series. Now, it's interesting because at the, at the time, at least according to her, Lady True is doing this because she wants to capture photos of Dr. Manhattan on Europa doing what he's doing. She knows he's not on Mars. She wants to capture pictures of him on Europa so that she can figure out a way to capture him and take his power so that she can fix the world. Again, this is this is classic kind of villain stuff right here. You know, kill and take power. And then, you, again, the most... We, we've talked about it on other podcasts. The best villains are the ones who think they're the good guys. Unless you're the Joker and then you're just crazy. That's also the best villain, too. There's a lot of best villains, but... Like Thanos, let's talk about the you know we we talked about Thanos. Thanos thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's helping everybody. Lady True thinks she's going to help all of humanity by taking Doctor Manhattan's powers and using them in a way that he never has to better the world. But by bettering the world, will she really be bettering or or making us subservient to her? So now we go to Adrian. He's back. He's in a cell still, and <laughs> he has. The cake in front of him, and I can't tell if it's just an old and moldy cake or if he sculpted a shit cake. I, I'm a little, I was a little unclear on this. Maybe you guys can provide some more context for me. It looks like a giant pile of poop with candles and sticks in it for candles. But this is when the the ground begins to shake. This is the moment of Adrian's liberation. 
the microfusion spacecraft that Lady True has talked about in prior episodes. Then we theorized that was perhaps the reason, the way that Vite got to Europe in the first place as part of his imprisonment. We find out that is actually going to be his salvation. And he is quite relieved to see that all of his work and efforts have paid off. And as we left him last week, he grabs his horseshoe, which he used to dig a tunnel out of his cell. His horseshoe is now sharpened to fine points on both sides. And he exits the cell into the yard of the manor. And he's going to make his way to the spaceship. To Lady True's microfusion spacecraft. And, again, this scene kind of helps fill us in on what exactly has been going on the entire time that Adrian's been here. Um, that he created all of this. He created... He made the game master his, uh, his his opposition, his opponent, while here so that he didn't go insane with boredom. And the game warden d- is playing to his role, attempting to stop Ozymandias from leaving because that is what he was created to do. Except Ozymandias is hell-bent on getting out of there, so he has to stop his villain, and he does so. So we see Ozymandias pull out the trick that made him famous, the game warden with the rifle on him fires and Ozymandias pulls his greatest trick where he catches the bullet. But the game warden believes him dead. So he goes in to check it out, see if he's killed the man. And this is when Ozymandias using his sharpened horseshoe kills the game warden, kills his opposition, his opponent, his villain. And as he's dying, he asks the question that we asked earlier why is the game warden wearing a mask? And Jeremy Irons, or <laughs> keep calling him Jeremy Irons this week. Ozzy Mandis's answer is uh, slightly t- telling, is very, very telling about the man. He did it because masks make men cruel. And there's something to be said about that, some of the themes that we've talked about in, in other episodes of the series, about how the mask provides power through anonymity. And Ozymandias knows this, and that's why he created the Game Warden to be his villain, to also kind of relive his glory days as a superhero amongst the world, but to bring out the worst of the Game Warden, to make him a better opponent. And even though Ozymandias, as the Game Warden lies dying in his arms, Ozymandias tells him he was not a worthy opponent, but that he put on a good show. (laughs) And, And Ozymandias acknowledges that he, because of the Game Warden and this game that he's been playing, here on Europa with these with these beings that Dr. Manhattan's created is the only reason he's not gone insane. So everything he's done has been by design, as if he knew it all along. So the world's smartest man has been playing the world's longest game while he waited and hoped that his salvation would come in the form of Lady True's spaceship. And right before, he, right before Ozymandias leaves, one of the Crookshanks clones uh, places his little metal bandana thing on his head as he makes his way into the spacecraft, completing the costume. And once on board the spaceship, it takes off pretty darn quickly. It's got to get back to Earth. As the spaceship leaves Europa, we see Ozymandias looking down, and he sees the message. We see the message that Ozymandias placed with the bodies of the Cruxshanks and Mr. Phillips's. You know, when we saw what he was doing initially, we saw that it said, save me. 
But now we see the complete message as the ship ascends back into back into space, and it says, "Save me, daughter," an acknowledgement of Lady True and her, gen, you know, family connection. I suppose is the best way to describe it, despite the fact that Lady True was not raised by Ozymandias by any sense, but that they share the same DNA, that they are related. So we'll talk more about that as. Ozymandias and Lady True come together as as this, this episode plays out, uh, but it's it's a stunning acknowledgement on Ozymandias' part because we we all know what a huge ego this man has, and he must have been desperate. He he was clearly desperate to appeal to the only person he knew would get him off Europa, Lady True, the smartest woman in the world. So as they leave. Ozymandias makes his way into another chamber of the ship, and he has to enter this little kind of bathtubby-looking kind of setup in the wall. And what happens next? The thing I kind of sort of teased is actually true. I was like, what? I said that in jest, but I was partly right. Do I get partial credit for that? I, I'm, I, I'll let you guys decide. I'm hoping I get partial credit in that. So Ozymandias poses himself heroically, hands on his hips, and he gets turned into a gold statue. This is to ensure his uh, safe transport back to Earth. Obviously, you don't get to Earth in like three seconds or anything like that. This is to prevent dehydration and hunger, all that all that stuff. So the statue of Ozymandias that we have seen in Lady True's garden is actually Ozymandias. He's been with us the whole time. Pretty wild stuff. But now, as we catch up to modern day time, it's time to make Ozymandias Ozymandias again. Time to be unstatued. Is that, a, is, that how the, is that how the saying goes? To be a statue is to unstatue a statue? I, I think that's a thing. And as they're prepping the Ozymandias statue for turning back into Ozymandias, you know, we see Lady True come together with Bien, and we find out that Bien is, is aware of who she is, that she is, in fact, Lady True's mother, and she seems to acknowledge that A-okay. Ozymandias is getting cleaned up, he's getting some injections, it doesn't look like a pleasant experience being turned back into a human being from being a statue, but there he is. And Lady True can't resist taking a couple shots at her father. Uh, he, he's, he, it's funny that he tries to give her this information and she's like, yeah, 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 I know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was pretty entertaining. We kind of start to see that Lady True is not the benevolent savior of humanity as, as she, again, takes a couple shots at, at Ozymandias here, um, particularly when she kind of throws in the fact that she rose from nothing to become who she is now just as he it wanted her to do, but he, she seemed to do it uh, in spite of him. And another shot where, you know, Ozymandias is in his classic Ozymandias garb, the superhero attire, and she says it'd be more... She's uh, selected clothing for him that's more appropriate for a person of his age, which is <laughs> probably not what Ozymandias was interested in hearing either. Ozymandias also meets Bien in the scene, and taking one look at her... He knows he's cl that Lady True has cloned her own mother. 
Whether he's impressed by that, I'm I'm not sure. He he seems I think he seems slightly concerned by by that revelation. And he sees the clock, the Millennium Clock that she's been building. Now he is pretty impressed, and I think he's actually a little scared too because I think he knows more of what this machine's capable of than we do. You know, this is the machine. This clock of hers is going to be what enables her to steal Doctor Manhattan's powers. So Lady True's forces roll out into downtown Tulsa, that area of the town that she purchased when she bought that farm. So she's built all of this. This is all part of the plan. She's been laying the groundwork for this killing Dr. Manhattan and taking his powers plan for a long, long time. We know that because of the scene in 2008. And buying the farm not, was not only vital for the recovery of her spacecraft in Ozymandias, but it, it plays a big part into the killing of Dr. Manhattan. So we 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 flash we go to this downtown square now, and we we go back to rather appropriately we go back to the newspaper stand, which played such a large role in the original graphic novel, and which was featured pretty prominently in episode two. And Ozymandias is taking the opportunity to catch up with the with the newspaper men. He's trying to fill in some of the blanks in his missing time. He can't believe that Redford's still the president. He also, the newspaper man. Uh, rather humorously uh, says, you know, you kind of look like, and it's it's an amusing scene. Ozymandias just looking for some kind of acknowledgement. Again, it's that Ozymandias ego. You know, he, he wants to be acknowledged. He wants to be recognized for his his greatness and for who he is. But the newspaper man is so funny because he just dismisses. He's like, nah, you couldn't be him. That, that guy's been missing for years. No one cares about him anymore. <laughs> Which, a blow to Ozymandias. Just, that guy's just getting kicked in the nuts. In the, in the opening of this episode, the newspaper man tells him tells Ozymandias the rumors that he just went out into the, that Ozymandias disappeared by going out into the jungle and living with the animals. <laughs> so then Ozymandias tells him what really happened, and the newspaper man, I think, kind of sort of believes him a little bit. <laughs> but their conversation is interrupted when Lady True's device flies overhead, begins to set itself overhead of the town square, this downtown square. And it's just this spinning orb. You know, there's part of, part of his transparent metal around it. This is going to be some kind of filtering device for Manhattan's powers when she goes to steal them. This is going to be what imbues her with Manhattan's powers. And it's a rather ominous-looking globy thing. That is for darn sure. Ozymandias, seeing the device, says the line. He says, he says one of uh, Rorschach's lines, that the end is nigh. He believes that these are the end times. Lady True, empowered by Dr. Manhattan, will be the end of us all. All right, so now we have to catch up with where we were last week at the abandoned J.C. Penney's where Laurie, where Laurie Blake's being held hostage. And the 7th Cavalry, the upper echelon of Cyclops and the 7th Cavalry are here for the show because they have captured Dr. Manhattan and they're about to see one of their own become the most powerful being in creation. Lori's given a front row seat. She's not a fan. A bit of a waste of Jean Smart and her acting ability is having her tied to the chair for like the first, you know, half of the episode. <laughs> but she still commands a lot of authority and a lot of presence despite the fact of being in a chair. Being tied to a chair, I should say, more accurately. So a call comes over the radio to a 7th Cavalry member, and we're hearing the shootout at Angela's house. 
as this scene's all playing out, as these Seventh Cavalry members are gathering. So they get Keen on the radio and tells him like just to fire the damn thing and get Manhattan here, capture him, do 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 it. This leads to our man Wade Tillman reintroducing himself. He's got a Seventh Cav mask on, and he approaches Lori so they can discreetly have a little chit chat. But Wade's gonna try and figure out a way to get them the hell out of there. And it's it's funny the back and forth between these two as as Lori still doesn't want to call him Looking Glass, still calls him Mirror Guy. And Wade still insists on being called Looking Glass. But we know that Wade's on, Wade is on the side of our heroes, at least. And it's rather interesting that Wade's wearing the Rorschach mask because he's kind of assumed the character that he seemed to emulate in a lot of ways. And that's when Manhattan is transported into the cage they've constructed. That's what those lithium batteries were for, that they were, capt- that they were taking from all, all those watches and all those batteries and things like that. They were using it to construct the cage to hold Dr. Manhattan. And this leads to Senator King getting very braggadocious as he begins to unveil his his master plan for the 7th Cavalry and his plan to become Dr. Manhattan. And he's doing like this weird kind of striptease thingy while he's pontificating and, and reflecting on the glory of their plan and how it's all going to work out and, you know, white men are going to be in power once again. And we see that he's wearing the Dr. Manhattan undies that is very similar to what Manhattan wore while he was attacking Vietnam, the, the, the black kind of V-shaped underoos. It's a very interesting look for a man who's not uh, blue and powered by, you know, godlike abilities. As this scene's playing out, Angela has been interrogating a 7th Cavalry member, breaking his fingers. Looked very painful because she needs to find out where to go because she has to go rescue her husband. Another interesting part of of this scene is where is Lori's reaction to seeing Manhattan. At first, she seems pretty shocked, but I think for her, after a, a, the momentary surprise of of, of John Osterman, of Doctor Manhattan, uh, I think everything begins to click into place for her. Now, as James Keene is pontificating on the on the glory of their plan and how initially they had theorized. Oh, you know, cops and masks, bad guys and masks, it's all the stuff, it's all going to get me into the White House. But then something happened, and it, we go back to that, we go back to the White Knight, the incident where the 7th Cavalry attempts to kill all the members of the Tulsa Police Department. <clears throat> as as we stated on the show, as we theorized on the show, that was when Manhattan powers manifested for the first time since he, he assumed the, the identity of, of Cal Ibar. And, but... Uh, his mistake, now, assuming, we have to assume that this was done unintentionally because, as Ozymandias told us in the last episode, he would be acting on muscle memory alone. He wouldn't be cognizant of the fact that he was using his powers or necessarily how to use his powers in the way that he might want to. So when that second 7th Cavalry member is about to blow Angela away, instead of like just vaporizing the dude, as we saw them do in last week's episode when they were fighting off 7th Cavalry members and he was just making heads explode... He teleports the second attacker and sends them to Gila Flats, to the, the old lab area where Dr. Manhattan was initially created. And so the 7th Cavalry member calls Joe Keene and tells him, I'm in New Mexico. And they're like, well, how the hell did you get to New Mexico? So they begin to piece it together. And this is all the stuff that, ju- that, that is being explained to us. This is why 
the Crawfords became friends with Angela and her family because they put two and two together and they realized that Dr. Manhattan was, in fact, Cal Ibar. And they've been working towards this for three years. So this, this, the Crawfords got close to this family so they could, get, they could get close. And eventually, I guess, the plan was always to betray them at some point. Though it seems like that plan got put into play a little bit faster uh, once... Well, did he get put into play faster? I think everything just kind of came together at the right time. So Judd's death, while unfortunate, didn't seem to speed up or delay the timeline at all for their plans. They, you know, they, they needed that, that cage built with the Dr. Manhattan-powered batteries so that they could trap him. Now, also what's going on in this scene is to, because of that cage, because of its material, uh, John slash Dr. Manhattan is a little out of sorts. He's not quite sure where he is in his time. You know, as a man who experiences time all at once, he's out of sorts. He's not quite sure what time he's in necessarily. So we see a Manhattan who is rendered rather powerless as he, a, a godlike being is on his knees before uh, a, a gathering of white supremacists, which they, which as white supremacists, believe they have just taken and made a god kneel before them it's it's a, a lot going on in this scene a lot to kind of like unpack and get through here but a lot of the a lot of our mysteries are solved in this scene too a lot of explanations are given a lot of blanks are filled in for the story that we've just watched over these past nine episodes i want to note the excitement that the white, that the white supremacists these these cyclops members these seventh cav members have as the their head racist uh is about to kill a man to take his powers is disturbing and probably insanely accurate. So eventually, after he's done monologuing for the sake of the story and, and exposing his plan, Angela does arrive, putting a little bit of a kibosh on everything. Now, she's in a room with a gun, and everyone else has their guns pointed at her. And Angela's surprised to see Lori, but now everyone's together in the same room, basically. A lot of our characters have come together for this particular scene, this standoff, and just trying to save her husband. But one look around, Angela's a smart cookie. We've we've noted that immediately. And because of her conversation with Lady True last week, we know that this is all part of Lady True's plan and not the Seventh Cavs' plan. The Seventh Cavalry is not in charge here. And she tries to point that out to them, to Seventh Cavalry members, but they're not hearing it. She points all the equipment from Lady True. And he's like, oh, we stole that from her. We stole that from her. And she's like, you know, she let you steal that from her. And it's going to, yeah, we're going to see why. Angela's actually trying to talk these people down. She, it's, it, she puts the gun down, even though they still have their guns pointed at her. But the, the 7th Cavalry has no interest in this story, despite the fact that it makes a ton of sense. Because they think that they are in charge. They think that they cannot be manipulated or outsmarted by anybody else. So Senator Keene goes into the chamber where he's going to steal Manhattan's powers. Begins to fire up. They're going to flip the switch here any second now. Machine fires up. Lights go dark. Keene's ready. They hit the button. Big effect. And what just happened? The entire room just got transported to that downtown square area of Tulsa. They are now in the square that Lady True has built for her plan to come to fruition. All of them are there. 
even the uh, the higher upper upper echelon members of Seventh Cavalry, the senators, the congressmen, all the people of power, all the Seventh Cavalry members are stripped of their weapons by some cool magnets. And Lady True's a little surprised to see Angela Ibar in the room. Because she knows what's going to happen. She knows that she's going to kill Dr. Manhattan now in front of Angela's eyes. And she tells Angela that she's fulfilling the promise that she made to Angela's grandfather, to Will. This is part of the deal that was struck between the two. But you also have to remember, too, Dr. Manhattan and Will made a deal as well. And that comes into play a little bit later. Also in the scene, you get Laurie reuniting, I suppose is the right word, with Ozymandias. And now this is where Lady True fulfills her promise to Will Reeves. She's going to read a speech that Will Will writes to to these these Cyclops members. She just kills them all. Has these awesome purple lasers, and then just poof, they're gone. Cyclops Seventh Cavalry wiped out. At least the upper leadership of it. So anybody who's still alive after this incident. Will be hard to be hard pressed to be organized. Now, Lady True also, not seeing Senator Keene, walks over to find to open the vault that he's put himself into, believing that he was going to be able to be, be successful in his plan. And instead, eh, just a bunch of goo comes out. So much, so much liquid. But this liquid is also going to be a conductor as it spills into the cage area where Dr. Manhattan's being held. The liquid also spreads to the feet, around the feet of our our characters. Ozymandias, Tillman, Lori Blake. Because of that liquid being at their feet, Dr. Manhattan is able to transport them away from what's about to happen. Also should be mentioned, too, that, that this, this area, this downtown area, where Lady True's built this downtown... That was initially also a, a farm for the egg farming, for the egg farmers. This is, this is the site of Greenwood, of the massacre of 1921. The, the, the scene that opened the series, the historical event that opened the series, that, that, that inspired these events that were the origin of Will Reeves, where that was, uh, you know, Will Reeves' Krypton for you know, for comparison's sake, uh, and he was expelled from it the way young uh, Kal-El was, in, in a lot of senses, who kind of played with the Superman metaphor. This was the end of his world, was here, in this downtown Tulsa area now. This was Greenwood. So Lady True killing the 7th Cavalry members here is poetic in, in, in a very strong sense. But while True is doing all this, Manhattan's doing what he can his, in what limited things he can do while in this lithium cage. So Manhattan uses the liquid at his feet, sends his power through it. It conducts his energy. And again, we see that it's around the feet of three of our characters, so he's able to transport them instantly away into Karnak, which Wade Tillman, by the way, not a fan of transporting. This is the second time vomiting in about five minutes because, yeah, not a fan of it. And we know he has got some damage from the initial psychic trauma that he experienced in 1985 in New Jersey. Veidt realizes that being, by being transported back to Karnak, Dr. Manhattan's just given them the chance to save the day. And Lady True is not happy 
that her father was just sent away instead of bearing witness to what was about to happen with her gaining the powers. Lady True, also an egotist, like her, much like her father, is, again, upset. She wanted Ozymandias to bear witness to this event. She wanted a bit of an audience, and she's not going to get one. She pretends like it's not important to her, but I think she's really pissed about it. You can kind of see her pouting about it in the corner. And then we get a really sad line out of the scene, too, because as after everyone's been transported away, Angela's the only character left with Manhattan. And it's a testament to everything we saw in the last episode about their relationship when 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 Cal, as Manhattan, looks at her and he, he says, uh, even he tells Angela he doesn't want to be alone when he dies. And it's it's very sad, very emotional scene. As is playing out, Manhattan's still trying to give Angela help and give her clues. It's important to also realize that everything that's happening was set up last week. The way things are going to play out, everything has been on a path. Everything has been leading to these moments that we're witnessing. It's up to Angela to interpret a lot of these clues during the scenes and what's going to happen after the conflict. And, you know, we'll get to that after part a little bit later. But remember, episodes six and eight were uh, insanely important in seeing what the end game of the series was and how we get to this point and what's going to happen at this point. There are so many clues now that we become insanely aware of. It'll be fun to go back over this entire series from episode one to episode nine. You know, once you know the entire story, going back and re-watching and, and seeing how they kind of bring this all together, how they pull all these threads together into this wonderful, rich tapestry for, for, this, for, this, for this season of, of Watchmen. It's a lot like when you read Watchmen the graphic novel. When you read Watchmen the graphic novel the first time around, I mean, you love it. You're blown away. You're enthralled. You're enriched by it. But it's when you go back and, and on the subsequent rereadings of Watchmen that – your appreciation for its brilliance uh, is is known to you. It's it's its complexities, its subtleties, its nuance. Um, Watchmen is not a book you read once and get, and get the entire picture of. And uh, that is something that Watchmen had taught me a long, long time ago. Uh, and it's actually something that's paid off in my real life as well as. You know, I, we've talked about it before on the show. I'm, I'm going, I'm trying to finish my, my degree at San Diego State, finally, after all these millions of years of not having completed it. And, you know, I'm an English major, so I get to read and reread a lot of books because I take a lot of similar courses that cross over with each other. And um, I've always been a big fan of Shakespeare, but when you get to reread Shakespeare, that's when the real magic happens, when you can kind of start seeing the... You, uh, we'll, 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 use a, we'll use a metaphor that Dr. Manhattan's used in the graphic novel. You kind of see how the puppets interact. You see the strings on all the puppets and, and how it all works and how it all comes together. And it's, it's, fa- it's fascinating and it's fantastic. And it takes your enjoyment of the story just to, to new levels. It's not to give you guys too much hyperbole, but yeah, it's, it's just don't, if, you've, if you've read Watchmen once, you haven't read Watchmen enough. And I think the same can be said for the, for the TV show. Watching it, watching it Week by week has been a lot of fun, but going back through it, it's going to be even more fun. Okay, so Lady True's activated her device, and she's taking Manhattan's powers, and Angela is watching. Meanwhile, at Karnak, Ozymandias has formed a bit of a plan, and it's involving 
shrimp. <laughs> okay, not shrimp, but the baby squids, the ones that we saw when the, 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 the breach happens in episode one. And we see that Ozymandias, to perpetuate the myth, the belief that interdimensional, occur, uh, interdimensional breaches are occurring, squid rainfalls happen. And, but they've been all been orchestrated by Ozymandias. He created an algorithm that dumps these squid. Now They are now part of the plan to save the day. Also, while we're in Karnak, you have to remember we have Wade Tillman in Karnak. He like, basically our new Rorschach, if if we're if we're gonna, you know, sort of close the loop on on the Watchmen's connections to the original graphic novel, Wade is essentially now our our uh, anal anagram for 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 Rorschach. So he's been clued into the truth in much the same way Rorschach was. The question is, how does he deal with it? And in this scene, Wade not stoked to find out that Laurie Blake knew that the, the squid monster was a hoax. Not a fan. And this leads to the revelation that Lori works for the FBI now, and Vite didn't know any of this stuff. And Tillman's pissed. Wade is really, really pissed, because just like Rorschach, he can't fathom this person is out free. This, man, this mass murderer is out free in the world, and no one's done anything about him. But Wade kind of Wade's gonna pick and choose his fights. We've we've seen this about Wade. Wade takes a step back and is like, okay, we got, we have to solve this problem first. We have to solve this Lady True problem first. So they go about their plan. They're gonna be doing something with the baby squids. Mean then we go back to Tulsa. Angela's telling Manhattan that he has to fight. That he has to do every whatever he can. I was a hundred percent wrong. I thought that perhaps we would get a depowered. Cal Ibar back, that there would be some kind of a happy ending for Angela and Cal. I was clearly wrong, because it is in this scene where Angela stays with Dr. Manhattan as he is dematerialized and, and reduced just to raw energy and sucked up into that, that filtration ball device that, that Lady True has constructed. But, not, but right before he goes, Angela asks... She's trying to get Cal to focus. She wants Manhattan to focus, and she asks where he is. And again, in a very sad and very emotional scene, uh, he's experiencing every moment with Angela all at the same time now. And it's it's sad. It's sad and a beautiful scene. And, you know, you really... I really think this relationship was a, a real strong point of, of the series. And, uh, and Yaya Abdul-Mateen was just utterly fantastic. He was so good in this, as as was the entire cast of this season, of this series. So he goes, he goes, he's deconstructed, deformed, de-energized. I don't know the right terminology here. I'm sorry about that. Big explosion. Angela's thrown back into a Manhattan booth. And now Ozymandias is about to unleash his plan. They're going to do a squid storm over Tulsa, over that downtown area. But they're going to freeze the baby squids. Adrian Veidt considers it to be like a Gatling gun firing down from the skies. Laurie thinks this is a plan to save John, to save Dr. Manhattan. But Adrian's well aware that, that Dr. Manhattan's dead already. Adrian has now become aware that his daughter 
is a monster and that she needs to be stopped. Lori wants to know what Lady True is going to do with Manhattan's powers. Vite tells her that Lady True claims that she's going to fix the world. That's when Wade asks, well, how do you know that she won't? And then this is when Adrian says in a moment of utter clarity, not only about her, about Lady True, but about himself. <laughs> it's because she is clearly a raging narcissist whose ambition knows no limits. And Adrian calls this hubris. Anyone who seeks to attain the power of a god must be prevented at all costs from attaining it. And that she, Lady True will not rest until she has all of humanity prostrate before her and worshipping at her feet. And this is when Adrian admits that he, in fact, is also a raging narcissist. It takes one to know one, I think is what he says in the, in the scene. And that's when he hits the magic button and the frozen squid entered the teleportation matrix. Baby squid horror is about to rain down on Tulsa. But Lori, again, Gene Smart doesn't get a ton to do in this in this episode. It's a lot of her reacting to things. Um, but clearly she's processed the fact that that her former love, that John Osterman, Dr. Manhattan, went and had a life with Angela, a love with Angela. So they have that in common. And so it it makes Angela try to it makes Lori try to figure out a way to reach Angela and warn her of what's coming. And that's when the Manhattan phone booth starts ringing because why wouldn't uh, Adrian Veidt have a phone that would connect to a Dr. Manhattan booth? So both Angela and BN are together and they get into the booth. They take the call from Lori warning what is about to happen. Meanwhile, Lady True is in the middle of her centrifuge. It is filtering the powers of Dr. Manhattan. There's a countdown going on, and that's when the powers are going to be transferred into, into True. Meanwhile, the police arrive on the scene as all this hubbub is going on in Tulsa. So why wouldn't the police show up and be like, what the fuck? So we see, we see Red Scare, we see Pirate Jenny, and, and the rest of the masked uh, Tulsa Officers, you know, with the yellow masks, the standard uniform police officers with their yellow masks. Lori gives the warning. Lady True is waiting for the to be empowered by the by by Manhattan to become a god on Earth. <clears throat> and as the countdown near zero for her getting the power transfer, you hear a thwip, and True looks at her hand. And sees a giant fucking hole in it. And that's when she looks up and realizes she connects the dots of where Manhattan sent Ozymandias and Lori and Wade. What Ozymandias is now doing to prevent Lady True from gaining Manhattan's powers. Meanwhile, the squid are coming down and just killing people all over the place. Cop cars are getting battered and destroyed. Glass is breaking. Bien and Angela are in the phone booth, and they seem relatively safe in there. Uh, Angela sees a piece of, of kind of like, it's kind of like a, like a reinforced plastic container. She uses it as a shield and begins running away from the squids because she knows what's going to happen next. Because that giant ball overhead, that's about to come crashing down right on top of Lady True, 
killed by her own Millennium Clock device. That's what she says, motherfucker, in Vietnamese. And that is the end of Lady True. No godlike powers for that one. Angela's making a mad dash at this point. And she's headed straight for the Dreamland Theater. This is in, in the modern times of, this, of the story, this is where they were doing the Oklahoma play from episode one, where Angela met up with, with the Crawfords to see black Oklahoma. And again, as we know now, the Crawfords were just pretending not to be racists. And in the movie theater, Angela finds Will and her kids sleeping on the stage, bundled up. Will Reeves, their, their great-grandfather watching over them. And Angela, who's, who for the last two episodes has been so desperate to speak with Will, is now able to sit down and have a conversation. And again, it's, it's a lovely scene, lovely scene by two wonderful actors. Um, I mean, we, we, we've been singing the praises of Regina King uh, since episode one of the show. She's just been utterly fantastic. But it was a real delight to see Louis Gossett Jr., Back at, back at, get get some limelight back because Louis Gossett Jr. is a fantastic actor. So it's good to see him get some juice out of this. We find out that Will's been watching over the kids since they since Doctor Manhattan transported them away. Again, remember, Will and Manhattan had a plan. This was the plan. Will knew where to be. Will knew where Manhattan was was, was going to transport the kids for safety. Plans within plans in this show. You got to realize that, you know. The 7th Cavalry had a plan. That was actually part of Lady True's plan. Lady True's plan was actually part of Dr. Manhattan's plan. <laughs> Ozymandias thinks he might have had a plan, but he was actually part of Manhattan's plan. So, it, you know, wheels and wheels in this. It's, it's, it's very much a clock in a lot of ways. Clocks have been factored heavily into the show. It makes sense. They factor heavily into Dr. Manhattan, into Dr. Manhattan's origins. So it's, it makes a lot of sense that the show is constructed a lot like a clock would be, with the gears, the wheels, everything coming together, clicking along. It, it, it really well-executed stuff. Uh, just, you know, there may be plot points that you don't care for. There may be plot points that you didn't like. You may not be stoked that you can get every answer to every question that the show brought up. Uh, but the execution was, was, was top-notch. And any questions you didn't get answered, it's because they're not important. This is a Damon Lindelof show. You have to remember that. Damon Lindelof does not give you all the answers you want. He's not about giving fan service. He's about servicing the story. And that's one of the reasons why I still love, love Lost as a, as, a, as a series. But that was because I accepted a long time, or very early into that show, that all these things that they're doing aren't going to matter in the end. A lot of it's distraction. But you get a lot of, a lot of answers in this series, in this episode in particular. And uh, again, the writers, the producers, the directors, everyone kills it. Kills it, kills it, kills it. So Angela's connecting with her grandfather. And Will tells Angela how this is the movie theater, where they are now. is the theater that he was in as a small boy watching Bass Reeves, his inspiration... His hero, on the on the big screen, right before the right before the Greenwood Massacre. He tells him that the Bass was really, his inspiration to become a cop too. 
but he realized, much like his hero, he had to hide his face to do any real justice in the world. And that led to the inspiration for Hooded Justice. Again, th th this is a great scene that just kind of helps kind of connect some, some little dots that are still in place. But it also kind of shows the emotional component, too, of what led to these actions, what inspired these actions, you know, why he... He did what he did, why he put that mask on, why he, the, the emotions he felt while doing these things. And, you know, w Will says it that putting the mask on, it hid his hurt and his sadness and his fear. And it was one of the reasons, when he realized that, it was one of the reasons why he had to take the mask off, why he had to stop being Hooded Justice, because. A mask needs a mask hides too much, and wounds need air to heal. That's one of his lines, and it's really strong stuff. It's just really powerful. We, you know, we've talked about the generational trauma, and we talked about trauma on. I, I should say we talked about trauma on a generational level. We talked about it on an individual level, and it's just powerful stuff it's really compelling and that's when we get our next bit of clue via will but from manhattan when he says you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs and angela's like what the hell does that mean and will just says well that's something that he said to me again eggs something that has been referenced heavily in this show Coming into play once again in a big bad way at the wrap up here. And he says it to Will, knowing that Manhattan will say it to Angela and that she'll understand it when the time is right. And Angela says, Well, I don't understand it. And Will just says, That's because the time ain't right. As the scene closes out, this is where we find we find that Angela wants to connect now, you know, because of the the pills and everything. And she she knows this this man now, that she knows her family, and she invites Will to come stay with them for a couple days. And I think we all know the implication is that that maybe Will's going to get to stay there for quite a while longer, and be and they're going to be a family together. You know, she'll get to know her her grandfather. He'll get to know his his great grandchildren, and they can start start beginning the act of healing their trauma. All right, so now we have to go back to Karnak. We're back in Antarctica. We have to bring the Ozymandias side of the story to a close. Ozymandias, it find, we, we find, they go into a little bit of a warehouse, and we find Archie. We find Night Owl's transport, the one they used to get to Antarctica way back when. Veidt's been hanging on to it. Wade Tillman, as a cop, knows how to fly it, because that design, like we saw Crawford using in episode one, the police have access to. So Wade's going to be able to fly them back to New York. Or back, <laughs> Wade's going to fly them back to Tulsa. So Adrian tries to send him on the way. He's going to go back about his life. And Laurie's like, no, no, no. You're under arrest, buddy. You killed three million people. And Ozymandias thinks it's hilarious. He laughs and he laughs. And Laurie just tells him, I'm not, I'm not joking. Vite says, you have no proof. I'm going to walk away. Oh, no. Look who has that CD confession to President Redford. Uh-oh. Wait till men. 
But Veidt still believes that his lie is essential to keeping world safety. So he's like, this will never happen because this is what saved the world. This is what's keeping the world safe. Again, right back to that ego. Now that his daughter's dead, he's back to being the smartest guy on the planet. And he goes on rambling. He's, you know. Lori believes that people have changed enough that they're not going to go back to pointing missiles at each other. That there's no point in keeping this lie a secret now. And Lori is dead serious about arresting Adrian, and he's not going to stand for it. Ego, right here. I saved humanity. And then, <laughs> and then Wade just hits him with a wrench, <laughs> knocks him out. So Adrian Veidt, after all these years, will be arrested, probably put on trial. Can Adrian Veidt be contained? Can he be captured? We're gonna, I, you know, I don't know if we'll find out or not, but he's gonna at least be made accountable, at least attempted to be made accountable for what he did in 1985, killing 3 million people in a fake squid attack. And perhaps this helps Wade get some some time to heal his emotional traumas as well, as the man responsible for inflicting so much dra trauma to him personally is now arrested. So we go back now. The main action is done. The main storyline is done. But there's still some fallout to deal with. Angela takes her family. They go into the bakery. Because, again, her ba remember, her bakery is right there in the middle of downtown. And they go into her sister night bunker. And that's when her eldest son, her eldest adopted son, Topher, finds the sister night costume, finds all the gear, and is rather surprised by the revelation of who his, his stepmother is. And they, they, it seems like they go and talk about it when they get back home. But that's kind of in this closing montage -y kind of scene where they go back home and they try to, like, try to start piecing back together their life. Angela's sucking the kids in for bed. She goes into the kitchen, and she sees the mess that they made. Remember when, when episode eight, when Manhattan, back in control of his of his memories and his faculties, is trying to create. He's making a breakfast for himself. He's hungry, and Angela comes in and throws the eggs to the ground. Now all of a sudden, those lines that Will just told Angela start to make a little bit more sense. And we have to go back. We have to go back to last episode when, when Dr. Manhattan first meets Angela. And they give you a little bit of a playback of it here too. Just, so you, just to help kind of connect the dots. And Angela asks Manhattan if he could put all of his power in one egg. And if a person ate that egg, would they get his powers? And he says, theoretically, yes. Well, guess what? There's one egg left, unbroken, from when Angela slammed into the ground. So Angela looks at the egg and she wonders. And again, call back to last week's episode, when Manhattan's out standing on the pool, and Angela tells him to get, get the fuck up off the pool, and Manhattan says, this will be important later. <laughs> it's important right now as our, as our show comes to a close. Angela holding the egg walks to the edge of the pool. And she wonders, is it possible? Is she just imagining? Did Cal, did Dr. Manhattan transfer his power into this egg? Angela cracks open the egg, slurps it down raw, because she's a champ. Because she's a fucking champ. Raw egg, Rocky style. This is when the opening, the notes of uh, I Am the Walrus begin to play. Remember, egg, remember the, the Eggman lines in that song as well. 
So eggs playing a big part. And Angela raises her foot and begins slowly, slowly descending it to the water. And just as her foot touches the water, goes to black. Crank up, I am the walrus. That is the end of our show. This is the end of Watchmen. This is the end of season one, maybe? Or is this the end, period? We don't know yet. Obviously, there's some stuff left open if they want to go back and further explore this new world that they've created in the Watchmen universe. Will they? I don't know. Damon Lindelof's not said anything. He has said um, if that he's not had an idea for a second season of the show, and he's not that worried about it, honestly. I'm not that worried about it either. I'm perfectly content if this is a, a one-off. I have no issues with that at all. And in a lot of ways, I think it's stronger if if, if it is a one-off as well. I don't think a second season would necessarily do it justice. Um, but that's also because I don't know what story they're going to tell. There were so many strong themes and strong topics to dive into. Um, using Watchmen as a vehicle to tell a story about about not only racism, but about you know, generational trauma and, and, and how that can affect people and how it can affect entire families. Um, and, and, and setting that, that kind of story in, in, in the Watchmen universe, in a comic book setting, was a, a I, I think, an a insanely bold choice, a very brave choice. And, you know, we've commended Lindelof, we've commended his, his, his team of writers, his team of directors, and, and the people involved. You know, the, the question is, will he find something else that powerful to talk about for a second season if there is to be one? You know, if there is to be one, will will Lindelof even be involved? Will he just decide to step away? Uh, kind of having, in my opinion, hit a goddamn game-winning Grand Slam home run in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, the, I don't know. Again, I'm perfectly content if they don't come back to it. But I'm also perfectly content to let this be one of those shows where uh, you don't have some kind of schedule for a new season where you kind of just let the show breathe for a little while. And then if an idea occurs, you know, a couple of years down the road, then you can do a new season of it. My other thought on the matter was that if you were going to continue Watchmen in some way, that we move off of these characters. But I'm not sure you can really anymore. Uh, after, after watching this episode a couple times now, um, to have any link to the Watchmen world, I think you'd need to have these characters, especially if, and I'm just going to say it, uh, you know, Angela Abar is, is now powered by Dr. Manhattan's juice, his god juices. His god egg gave her the abilities. I choose to believe that's what happened. I choose to believe Angela walked on water. And she's now the god queen of Earth. I'm okay with that. So a second season of the show would obviously have to do... Well, I guess it wouldn't obviously have to. I don't know. This is such a weird speculative conversation because... Obviously, this show started off with vague connections to the Watchmen graphic novel, you know, and as we got further in, those connections became bigger and bigger and more profound. 
but I don't know if you can play the same same game again. So do you just go full bore into that Watchmen world? Uh, do we just have a series of Lori running around arresting people? I mean, is is Wade Tillman going to join the FBI now? Uh, like, well, like what? There, there. Like I said, there's there are things to pick up and do. But will it be as rich, as compelling, as provocative, as as uh, thought provoking, and 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 self referential, and 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 will it cause self examination? Like as I said last week, it's hard not to watch this show and reflect on things in your life and and the things that you've experienced, the things that you have perhaps said and done and witnessed. And I, I said it before, as a, as, a, as a white person, when this series opened, I had to immediately pause the show and go on the internet because I didn't know a single thing about the Greenwood Massacre of 1921. I had to Google it, and I was embarrassed of that. Now, it, granted, it was the fault of my school system, and I think most of our school systems are the same way. This was a, a, a historical event that was suppressed for a long, long time. But that's the kind of stuff that this show do, does and, and should do. I love this, this, ser- this series because it was just a wonderful way to examine so many facets of, of our society and really look at things and, and, and ask questions about things like why are things like this? Why did it have to be like this? And I'm not smart enough to have answers to those questions. But the fact that this show exists to make us ask them is insanely important. I have to tread lightly with what I'm about to, about to say here. Because I am not a person who is interested in uh, doing politics or politicizing anything. But we live in a country that is complicated. And... Race is a big deal, and you know we all, a lot of us seem to think that it shouldn't be a big deal because we we kind of harbor this illusion that we should all just kind of live in harmony with each other. But it's it's not as simple as that. It's never as simple as that. Our history is complicated. Our present is complicated, and we all just need to do better, better for ourselves, better with each other. Again, I don't want to go get all uh, soapboxy or anything like that. But again, this show, bringing these questions to the forefront, and it's awesome. It's so cool to see. So cool to uh, see a, a medium that I love, of, you know, obviously excellent television, but also the incorporation of, of superheroes, of using the Watchmen universe. I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit. I apologize. But putting putting that kind of story in this medium in, 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 into a genre piece is excellent. And I think it goes, to, goes without saying that I, I think Watchmen's been my favorite show of this entire year, and I've watched some good fucking TV shows. Let's not, let's, let's not pull any punches, but I think Watchmen might be the best one. This was absolute must-see television every Sunday night. I, did, I, couldn't, I tried to wait until Monday morning when I was off of work, but I, didn't, I, I got to the point where I didn't want to. I had to watch it Sunday night. I had to know what was next. We know would there be more reveals? Would there be more shocking actions? Like what was what was happening? I needed to know. I needed to know. I needed to know. And again, I, I mentioned it before. The way these the the way the tapestries pulled together was 
just goddamn impressive. You know, you you kind of had these threads at the beginning, and the way it comes together is just beautiful. Hey, Tom here once again, teleporting back into the podcast, Dr. Manhattan style, uh, because, well, there's a little unfinished business. Uh, one of the topics I wanted to talk about, but I wasn't unable to get into during the regular recording, because I simply forgot, was more about, you know, I wanted to, to discuss more with you guys about Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan has removed himself from the world. He's been gone since 1985. Everyone thinks he's up on Mars, at least until the White Knight, when the 7th Cavalry figures it all out. And the exception of Lady True, obviously. And ex But because they don't see Manhattan, because he's not in their lives, his power is something to be coveted. To be coveted. And um, something to seek to steal. You get really interesting. You get a really interesting take on on Doctor Manhattan. We have discussed the kind of end of organized religion in the Watchmen universe. Just kind of scratched on it because it was it was sort of hinted at, and on a on the cover of a newspaper that that we we, we panned past in a shot. Organized religion within the the world of Watchmen in this series is something of a question mark. We don't really know where religion stands. We, it's sort of been hinted at that uh, many re religions are in trouble because why go to a church and pray to somebody who never answers back when you can pray to Dr. Manhattan who is there and in 1969 won, won the Vietnam War for the United States. He's a being of power and now people will sort of pray to him via these Manhattan booths where their their where their prayers their messages were recorded and broadcast to Mars so that he could hear them, even though he's not there. So there is kind of like a a religious like aspect to that. You know the notion that uh, you know we go to church, we pray, but is God even there? Is God listening at all? So they're they're they're, they're trying to make it that parallel right there. But because. They know, the 7th Cavalry, because Lady True knows where he is, and he's his being of power, who's not doing anything with it. So they see this power, and they see it being wasted. And this has to go into the, psych the, the psychological makeup of John Osterman, uh, the, the man imbued with the powers, the, these, these godlike abilities, and who calls himself Dr. Manhattan. John, we talked about it. John Osterman, son of a watchmaker, becomes a scientist. Science is his thing. In the original graphic novel, in the in the Zack Snyder film, Manhattan's very much into uh, exploring the inner workings of the universe. He's still very much a scientist. He doesn't become a superhero necessarily because he wants to thwart bank robberies. He he kind of sort of does it out of a sense of duty that's that's hoisted upon him by the others, by the other Minutemen. Um. But it's it's never his motivation for doing anything. He he joins up for the Vietnam conflict because he thinks he's supposed to do that. But he's really a man who wants to be left alone to to explore, like I said, the inner workings of the universe and and unlocking the the secrets of existence and things of that nature. So by by that standard, Doctor Manhattan is a very passive character. He's very He's not into asserting himself and using those godlike powers of his to 
change the course of humanity in any way whatsoever. He's, you know, he has that scientific mind. He wants to let humanity play out to a certain extent. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he sort of helps convince the Minutemen at the end of the graphic novel to let Vite, you know, I mean, not, not that Vite gives him a chance. Like, his plan pretty much goes through, but there was no chance to stop him. And then once... <clears throat> Once the, the squid attack in New York has happened, Manhattan does play a small role in, 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 in convincing the others that this is, this is going to work. This is the, the nuclear deterrent that the world needs to not blow itself up. And then he goes away. And now people who don't like the way that the world is now, who are also, interestingly enough, people who know that there that there's been a giant hoax played on the entire planet. They want that power to affect the change that they think they need to make. So they want to be imbued with these powers so that they can take action and, and direct the course of humanity. And I think this episode does a wonderful job of showing why Osterman having those powers is possibly the best scenario because... They were never being used for ill purposes. Um, he never interfered in the de development of humanity. But there are things he could have done to help human evolution. And the, the, the line spoken by Will Reeves towards the end of the episode while he's in the kitchen with Angela uh, just before she discovers uh, the egg uh, while she's cleaning up some of the mess from her and John's conversation prior to the 7th Cavalry arriving in episode 7, you know, Will, Will says that, because Angela's very distraught still. She just lost her husband, the love of her life. And Will, Will, Will tells her, like, he was a good man, but he could have done more good. And it's hard not to... It's hard to find any fault with that logic in, in, in that sense. I mean, a man with those kind of powers could have, could have, but it's, it's one of those philosophical things. If you have those powers, do you do all the things that you think are right to fix the world? Because ultimately, who are you? You're basing everything off of your own judgments, your own you know, sense of right and wrong. Perhaps it, the world gets better, perhaps not. And I think that's going to be the question if there is going to be a season two of Watchmen that perhaps if they follow Angela, if they follow this thread, this thread line that she now has the powers of Manhattan, she has to figure out the best way to apply those powers to affect change in the real world in a, in a, in a, in a true and lasting way that will actually improve things. It's very, very complicated stuff. It's, it's very heady. Um, I'll be thinking about it for a long, long time going forward. But again, it's interesting to to look at Manhattan as this sort of passive figure. He 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 sort of reacts to everything as it happens. I mean, we've seen that since the graphic novel when when we talk about Eddie Blake gunning down uh, the the woman, the pregnant woman in Vietnam. You know, he he just sort of lets it happen. And there, there, there's the graphic novel has a lot of this in it. It it just shows his kind. Again, John Osterman's makeup as a, as an as a as a human being you know he doesn't gain these powers and think of like look at all the things i can do now you know it's again 
going forward, if there is a second season of The Watchmen, that I think that's is a pretty powerful storyline, a pretty interesting notion. It's not as grounded as um, dealing with with racism and, and, and trauma and things like that. Uh, but the idea of who who has the moral right to wield that kind of power, if anyone, is is always an interesting question in, in a lot of uh, in various forms of literature and movies and, and things of that of that nature. Again, something just to kind of think about. Um, I'm gonna figure out where I want to drop this into the recording, and I'll get you guys to get back to my original recording where I didn't talk about these things. All right, let's get back to the show. So I don't want to keep. I I do feel like I'm kind of re- re- repeating myself a little bit here, so I don't want to keep going on on and on and on about the same old thing. So I'll just stop there. Uh, but tell me what you guys thought. You know, uh, hit me up on the social medias. Hit me up on the emails, and. Uh, share your thoughts. I I hope that uh, the Squidmaster General and I are going to get get to have a chat about the end of Watchmen, especially since we both kind of shared some theories with each other that proved to be wrong. <laughs> so we we'll have to uh, admit to each other that we're both kind of dopes. <laughs> but it, it, it's all in the good fun, and I think that was one of the nicest, coolest parts of the series was the Mister X, because we were buying into it. We're like, oh man, all these references to to. Eddie Blake into the comedian and into Vietnam. It's clearly they're going in this direction. And no, they're like, no, we're not. We're going for the answer that's right in front of your fucking face, but you're too you're not thinking about it in the right way. Of course we weren't. You didn't give us enough information. But I love the I love the Red Harries. I love the Mr. X. It was a lot of fun to talk to people about these about this series, especially people who you know, even if they just know the show, it was fun to talk to them. I had a blast talking to people who know the comic the way I do because we were trying to pull it apart in, in so many different, you know, trying to just peel back layers and layers. Like, this is a connection to this, and this is a connection to that. So this, this show was a total hoot for me. Uh, it was it was a real blast. And, again, I can't wait to rewatch it because it was super killer. Super, super killer. And it's one of those things, too. It's, it's, it's a classic Lindelof misdirect from the very beginning because... They they lead you to believe that the murder of Jed Crawford is the the impetus of the show. I think I even bought in on that, but I should have known better as someone who's watched Damon Lindelof shows that the murder of Jed Crawford is the least interesting part of the show. It's the least interesting mystery of the show, but it just kicks everything off. It gets events moving. Um, so again, three, three. I don't know why I said three. Just a huge standing ovation, rousing applause. For, for this this series it's been a real blast um and on that note as i wrap it up i want to i want to mention uh how much fun i've had doing this this has been uh something different for the tomcast podcast but it's something i really really had a good time doing and i hope to be able to continue doing these kind of sub subset episodes you know these 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 explorations of of series on television um because I, I had a blast doing it, and I got a lot of really nice feedback from, from people who reached out um, about these episodes for what I was doing for, the, for this series uh, and also for the Mandalorian episodes. So I, 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 I love that. I love getting to, to hear from people who are being so wonderfully supportive by even listening to this podcast and, and, and hearing the, the wonderful things I've heard. Just, they, they fill my heart with joy and delight and, and 
ensure that I'll keep doing these episodes because it's good to know that I'm not the only one having a good time uh, making them and listening to them. Not that I am a big fan of listening to myself talk all the time, <laughs> but I'm, I'm again, I'm so thankful that you guys have enjoyed them as much as I have enjoyed making them. So they, they will continue. Obviously, we still have The Mandalorian to wrap up. That's two episodes left of that puppy. Um, and then I think I mentioned it already, but if I haven't, I will repeat. We will be doing these episodic breakdowns for Star Trek Picard in January. That is going to be happening for sure. So I love me some Jean-Luc Picard. So there will be a subset episodes for people who are watching Picard with us. It, it'll be a lot of fun. I can't wait to kind of get into that and kind of reimmerse myself in the world of Star Trek, something that I grew up with. Um, and that I took a bit of a break from when the next generation went away. But uh, as CBS is going all in on, on Star Trek again, uh, so am I. So we'll, we'll break down some, some Picard when that happens in, in January. And maybe that leads to more Star Trek breakdowns too because I'm a big fan of Discovery now as well. We'll, we'll. we'll see. We'll see. I'll get some feedback from you guys about that too. Um, but after Picard, I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to figure it out. We will have to figure it all out. Also, important to note for these subset episodes, uh, going forward, if we do continue them after Picard, we're only going to do them for, for, at least at this point, we're only going to do them for shows that are weekly in nature. Uh, you know, the new season of The Expanse dropped on Amazon Prime uh, on Thursday, Thursday night. And as much as I love that show, as much as it's one of my favorite science fiction television shows ever, and as much as I love talking about it with people who watch it, because of its binge, bingeable qualities, I'm not sure trying to break it down uh, episodically makes a ton of sense. Because we all, you know, when, when a show drops and it's bingeable, we all watch it at whatever rate we're, we're, we, we can watch, you know? I can only watch two, two, maybe three episodes at a time before I, I have to get up and get at, get moving around. Um, but other people, like, they'll, they'll just plow through it. Like, they'll make it that, like, their weekend goal to, to finish the entire thing in, like, 24 to 48 hours. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to do a podcast for episodes that, you know, I'm on episode one while, you know, some of you guys might have been on episode nine. You're like, he's still talking about that? So <laughs> any show that's bingeable, I'm, I'm kind of not interested in doing these subsets shows about but we'll see i know i'm talking about this a lot maybe i'll cut some of this out i don't know we'll see how it goes all right so thank you all once again for listening thank you to my current patreons the aspen hill chody the squid master general brian broussard and the batman of bay park jeff nail just for just you know you guys who are on the tier one level your new patreon only episode is available it is a commentary track for star wars the force awakens and I hope you guys have had a chance to download that, check it out, listen to it, um, and hopefully be amused by some of my crazy thoughts on The Force Awakens and some of the strangeness that actually exists in that movie. We will get the next episode. Now, the next Patreon-only episode will be up and ready shortly for January. So if you guys are thinking about getting on board with the Patreon, uh, the Tier 1 level has got some cool perks for you. And uh, the next episode, in case you don't know, will be... Ooh, fire truck. The next Patreon-only episode that will debut in January will be a commentary track for The Last Jedi. And that is going to get nuts because I know a lot of people can't stand that Star Wars film. I'm not one of them. I am a lover of that movie. 
but it's not without problems. So that'll be a fun commentary track. We'll get to de- I'll get to I'll, I'll get the chance to deep dive on that and get really really fucking Star Wars nerdy with you guys. All right, so thank you so much, my patrons. Thank you to everyone else who's listening to the show. The show's always free. Don't feel like you're obligated to join Patreon, but if you do, you get some cool bonuses out of it. But thanks to everyone for downloading, listening, supporting the show in any way you can, sharing it on social media. Follow us on the social media at Tomcast underscore Popcast on Twitter at the Tomcast underscore Popcast on Instagram. Email me TomcastPopcast at gmail.com. We talked about Patreon already, uh, but make sure you guys are subscribing to the show and give us some some good five star reviews. That'd be wonderful. So with that in mind, thank you so much for joining me on this journey of Watchmen. Season one? End of season? End of series? We don't know. But thank you so much for being with me on this. I appreciate it. I love you guys so very, very much. You guys take care. We'll be back very, very soon for The Mandalorian. Episode eight drops tomorrow. So hopefully I have this out in time and you can listen to this and you can listen to The Mandalorian back to back. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. All right. I have enough talking. Ciao, babes. We're not going to be fucking sunk this year. We're the Stanley Cup champion.